Our broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. I would say absolutely beautiful. I mean, you are absolutely beautiful. I mean, look at you, Cornwall Church, with your unveiled face re reflecting the glory of God and your being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, the beautiful bride of Christ. And I'm so glad that you're here, here in the room. Glad you're with us today. Those of you online and from around the world, glad that you joined in with us as we are in this series where we are intentionally and incrementally, day by day, looking more like Jesus. And not just looking more like him, but becoming more like him because looks can be deceiving. In fact, there are many times that people look a certain way, but they haven't become that. And the people that Jesus had the biggest issue with in his day were with some men who looked righteous. They looked a certain way. They looked like they, they had it all together, but deep inside they had not become, there had not been this transformation, there had not been this change. And so some strong, strong words from Jesus when he said to them, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. You look the part, you look good, but nothing's happened inside. And because of this, this outward appearance, this facade that they had, it resulted in a great deal of pride and self-righteousness, which was then translated into a, an exclusivity and a critical judgmental spirit and a harsh treatment of others. Because it wasn't just about looking the, the right way and, and doing the right things on the external, the exterior, but being transformed and changed inside. And it's not just men either. There was a time when Peter was talking to some ladies in the church and they would come to church and they had beautiful hair and beautiful clothes and beautiful jewelry. He says, y'all look great and all that beauty. But he says he shouldn't focus so much on that. He would write these words in 1 Peter 3. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Now, he's not trying to squelch women or silence them or cause them to be subservient. What he's saying is, ladies, you ought to care as much or more about the condition of your heart as you do the condition of your hair. Right. Now, I got to be a little careful here because I don't want all the ladies walking out. <laughs> he says, give some attention to the attributes and the attitudes that you have, not just your adornment and your accessories. And this is what we're talking about, this beauty of becoming, living this life of the virtues. And for our series, we've decided that we would use this working definition for virtue, the attitudes and the attributes of Christ. And that's what we need to continue to grow in, continue to have developed within us, continue to be transformed into his likeness, becoming more like him. Right. Not only do we need that, but our world desperately needs that. Because I don't think I would have to work very hard at all to have you agree with me that the attitudes and the attributes of Christ are not displayed in our world. That our world is filled with division and hatred and cruelty and it just, people being mean. And it's on national levels, global levels. 
I mean, it's groups, it's entire, I don't know, political parties and, and interest groups and, and organizations, and maybe more importantly, it's individuals. And we as the church, the body of Christ, the people who follow after Jesus are called to be different than the rest of the world. We're called to shine like stars in the universe, to, to, to have this light. And yet, unfortunately, so often the church doesn't look that much different than the rest of the world. Unfortunately, church history is littered with examples of some atrocities done in the name of Jesus that were cruel and divisive and mean. There are times in entire theological groups and denominations and churches and pastors and once again, individuals are cruel and mean. And here's the truth. I think that every single one of us is susceptible to this. As human beings, we can go around and, and point everybody else out, but we need to stop and look here. Some of you are familiar with a man named Eugene Peterson. He was a pastor for many years. He's also a theologian, an author, and a professor. He's probably best known because he's the man that took the scripture and then made this paraphrase called the message. It's kind of this every man's everyday language of this, this paraphrase of the Bible. But he talks about how he was even susceptible to He talks about how when he was raised in a Christian home, there was this boy named Garrison that was his, a bully and would pick on him. And this is what he wrote about that experience as a kid. He says, I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison knew that about me, but he picked me for his sport. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian, and he taunted me with, Jesus, sissy. I arrived home every afternoon bruised and humiliated. My mother told me that this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I'd better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day I was walking home with seven or eight of my friends when Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting. That's when it happened. Something totally uncalculated, totally out of character, something snapped in me. The Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and to his, I realized that I was stronger than he. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fist. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Jones was my first convert. <laughs> now that is not the beauty of becoming. But so often in the church, we can be that way. We're going to beat the love of Jesus into them whether they want it or not. And we're going to keep on until they get that. That is not what we're looking at. And so today, today the virtue I want to talk about is the virtue of kindness. The virtue of kindness. 
which is so desperately needed in our world. And I'll just say this right up front. Last fall, when we were putting this series together, we listed off all of these virtues found in Scripture and throughout the, you know, the church father's writings and all these virtues. And there's no way we can cover them all in this series. But we had to pick about nine or ten of them. And as we were looking through these, on my first draft of these virtues, kindness was not one of them. While we would all agree it's a need in our world, in my thinking, it's like there's better ones to cover. I mean, kindness is, it feels so, so soft, so easy, so, I don't know, kind of like you got Maria Von Tropp and Mr. Rogers and Barney all put together. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice, but it's, it's just fluffy. It's froth. I mean, it's like meringue. Like kindness is the meringue of the virtues. Meringue, it's, it's, it's pretty, it's sweet, but there's no substance to it. And so I decided, why would I waste one of my weekends on this meringue virtue of kindness? But then as I began to study it, I began to realize, no, 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 this one's really, really necessary. I mean, if for no other reason, just the frequency that it occur, occurs and the, and the sheer volume of times that kindness is referenced. I mean, as you look at these lists of virtues, it's like the common denominator, one of the ones that comes up again and again and again. When Paul writes to the churches in the region of Galatia, and he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and he lists it, kindness. When he writes to the churches in Corinth, and he talks about love and the preeminence of love, and if I have the, the gift of you know, faith, and if I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have all these things, but I don't have love, it's nothing. And then he gives a definition of love. He says, love is patient, which is a passive trait, and love is kind, which is active. And then he gives this whole list of things that love doesn't do. But it's like kindness is the first active trait that he lists there. And in Colossians chapter 3, when he's talking to the church in, in Colossae, when he talks about as, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with these things. We've looked at these things. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness. It shows up again. And the passage we started this whole series with out of 2 Peter 1, when Peter is talking about, you know, because of all these things, make every effort to add to your faith this list of, of knowledge and goodness and, and, and uh, you know, uh, perseverance and, and the, uh, the godliness and then this brotherly kindness. So you begin to see that in these four lists, it comes up and up again again. It's, it's a, a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of the facets of love. It's, it's one of the... Uh, one of the very uh, articles of clothing that we're to clothe ourselves with, and it's one of the things that we're supposed to make every effort. And that's just four passages of lists. And it goes on and on throughout the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, this word that is often translated as kind or kindness or, or uh, loving kindness, it shows up 248 times over and over again in the Old Testament. Now, I, we could spend a long time on this. We won't. But this word in the Old Testament, it's a Hebrew word. It's chesed. And I'm so glad no one's sitting right here. Chesed. And chesed is a, it's a unique word. It's a hard word to translate. In fact, I think it was the Bible Project did an entire hour podcast on chesed. Is it fascinating? We won't go into all of that. But this idea of this chesed is that it, it encompasses the very totality of the character of God, of his attributes. And some of the ways they, they try to summarize it is that it's love and generosity and enduring commitment. It's not just meringue. And so it's translated often as kind and kindness and 
loving kindness. Like in Psalm 86, where it says, you are kind and forgiving, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. It's his kindness. So as I begin to study this, I think, well, absolutely we have to we have to focus on this because kindness is a very godlike virtue. It's a very godlike trait. So often we hear this, and some of you have felt this way, maybe even today think this way. I don't like the Old Testament God. I mean, he's this angry God and he's always getting vengeance, and there's so much judgment, and it's this wrath of God. Well, it's interesting what the Old Testament actually says. In Jeremiah chapter 9, it says, this is what the Lord, Lord all in caps, that's Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and knows me. And then he begins to say, let me tell you about me. That I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Oh, we get this idea of, of Yahweh exercising justice and righteousness and judgment, but that's not where he starts. He says, you want to know me? You want to boast about knowing me? I mean, you can talk about all of your knowledge, but I'm telling you what, I know way more than that. Don't even boast about that. You can boast about your power, but I am the all-powerful one. You can boast about your riches and your wealth, but where do you think that even came from? If you want to boast about something, boast that you know me. And let me tell you, this is who I am. First and foremost, I exercise kindness and I delight in that. Or how about this in Isaiah chapter 54? In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. For a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. There are times where God in his holiness and his righteousness, completely justified, brings judgment. There are times when there's a holy, righteous anger that is displayed. But those times are moments, and they're eclipsed by this everlasting kindness of our God. Jesus even referenced the kindness of God in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 6, where he says, but love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Now, wait, 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 wait. I thought God was judging the wicked. I thought God was against the wicked. I thought God was going to destroy the wicked. He's kind to the wicked. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense. I, I thought God was, was just kind of waiting to snuff them out. They're wicked. Uh, Thursday morning, our elders got together Thursday morning for a prayer meeting, and, and I was sharing kind of a little, giving them a little appetizer, a little teaser this weekend's sermon, and we read that verse. And one of our elders uh, said something along this line. It wasn't word for word, but something along this line. She said, very often, the greatest need for kindness is where it's least deserved and most difficult to give. Let me say that again. Very often, the greatest need for kindness is where it's least deserved and most difficult to give. 
I mean, it's fine to do random acts for kindness for the people behind you in the line at Starbucks. You've never met them. You'll never talk to them. You'll never, it's just throwing down an extra $17,000 for their cup of coffee. That's easy. It's easy to do kindness when it's all fun and easy, when there's, when there's puppies and there's pygmy goats and there's panda bears. And that, that's nice. What about when they're ungrateful? What about when they're wicked? And yet, our God shows kindness to the ungrateful and the wicked. You say, he would do that for them? Yes, he would. Yes, he will do that for you. In Romans chapter 2, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience, not really realizing that it's God's kindness that leads you toward repentance? You see, the kindness of God is anything but meringue. It's not just this sweet, substanceless fluff. It is the very character and nature of our God. So I want to spend some time, I want to look at a story that is an example of this kind of kindness. It's a story actually out of David's life, and it's a story that both Pastor Kip and I have preached on probably in the last 10 years. So the story may be familiar, but I think it bears repeating. Many of you are familiar with David's life. David was a young teenage boy when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse to anoint the next king because King Saul has lost favor with God. And they go through all the older brothers, all the, all the ones that would seem to be the obvious choices, and they come to this, this, this kid that's out in the field watching the sheep, and they bring him in, and Samuel says, this is the next king of Israel, and anoints him with oil. Now, he won't be the king for a long time, but he's got the mark on him. He's been anointed. This is God's man for the future. And over time, there are the great stories of David where he kills Goliath and all that, and he comes into the service of the king, and he is so loyal to King Saul, even though King Saul is, is not a, a godly king and he's not a man after God's heart, but he's loyal. And in the process, he continues on and he actually marries one of the king's daughters. So the king is not only his king, but it's his father-in-law. And the king's son, Jonathan, is his best friend. And we're talking more than just like roommate in college. I mean, these guys, this is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a friend. They have a friendship that many people never, ever have in their life. The friendship that they have, it's like this covenant friendship, these soulmates, these, these brothers. It's just, they are so close. And one day, in the midst of, of their lives together, David recognizes that Saul is jealous of him. I mean, people are writing songs about David and Saul, but it makes David look a lot better than Saul. And David says to his friend Jonathan, his brother-in-law, your dad is going to take me out. And he's like, no, 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 no. And they have this conversation. I think it's in 1 Samuel 20. They're out in a field, and they have this conversation. And David is saying, yes, I'm telling you, your, your dad does not like me, and he doesn't want me around. And, and, uh, and David says to Jonathan, would you show kindness to me? Would you show kindness to me? And he says, well, you know, yes, of course. And so they set up this plan to try and figure out Saul's intentions. And what's interesting is that while David asked Jonathan for kindness, Jonathan turns around and asks for it as well. And this is really, really crucial because Jonathan knows. He knows Jonathan should be the next king because he's Saul's son, but he knows that David will be the next king. And so he says this to David, 
First Samuel 20, verse 14, 15. Jonathan says to David, David, show me unfailing kindness like, and look at this, like that of the Lord. They didn't think God was this vengeance-filled, angry, mad God. They, they said he's a kind God. Show me your unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I, might, that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Now, the, the kindness piece, that's fine. Let's have a covenant of kindness. That's great. But it seems odd that he would say, show your kindness to me like the Lord's kindness so that I will not be killed. As long as I live, that I won't be killed. But that What's that got to do with anything? Well, the reality is in their culture, if there was a change of administration, if there was a new dynasty, if a new king came in, it was just normal that the old king and all of his family would be eliminated, shall we say. That way there would be no chance of a coup, no chance of an overthrow, there would be no rivalry. So the king would not only be deposed, but, but all of his family would be eliminated as well. They would be killed. And Jonathan knows David's going to be the king. He's saying, I'm asking you, when you're the king, our culture would say, you should get rid of me. I'm asking that you would show me kindness so that I will not be killed. And not only me, but my family as well. And you get that. It says, so don't take out my kids. But I was thinking about this as a parent, and those of you who are parents will understand this. One of the greatest things anyone can ever do for you as a parent is be kind to your child. Right. Is to come alongside. Is to help them out. Is to encourage them. It's to include them. It's to develop them. It's to pour into them. And that just, as a parent, that does something for you. And likewise, you know, the deep, deep pain of when someone does something that hurts your child. When your son comes home crying because of some of the cruel things that were said to him about him on the playground. When your daughter comes home and is sullen in her bedroom and won't come out because of what the mean girls are saying and doing when they go off to the bathroom without her. And it does something to you as well. In fact, it brings out a part of you that's not very kind because it's your children. Right. And Jonathan says, David, you show kindness to me, but to my family as well. Well, for the sake of this sermon, not going for hours, we're going to have to fast forward a few years. Not that there's anything to watch this afternoon. <laughs> fast forward 15 years. Saul is still the king. David and Jonathan are 15 years older. And there's a, an incredible battle that's going on with the, the Philistines, and, and it's on Mount Gilboa, and, and it, the, it's a horrible day for Israel. The battle is not going their way, and Saul's son, Jonathan, is killed in battle, as well as his other two sons. So he loses three of his sons in this battle, and then the archers come, and they're shooting arrows, and Saul is, is mortally wounded by one of these arrows. And he doesn't want to fall into the hands of these uncircumcised Philistines. And so he falls on his own sword. And now Israel has lost this battle. They've lost their king and the three sons of this king. It's a horrible day for Israel. It's a horrible day for David. His once-in-a-lifetime best friend, his covenant friend, Jonathan, is dead. The king that he has been loyal to is dead. The country is in disarray. Now, 
David does become the king, and eventually he unites the kingdom. And if you fast forward another 10 years or so, now David is in his probably mid-40s. Things are going great. He's the king. He's writing great songs that people love and will sing for well, thousands of years. The kingdom is united. It's the glory golden days of Israel. He is the king. He's in his palace. He's got, everything is going well. And I imagine one day he's just thinking back over his life and the blessings, the goodness of God in his life. And maybe waxes nostalgic and thinks back to that best friend of his who died 10 years ago. Thinking back to all the laughter they had, the adventures they shared, the difficulties they walked through together, the encouragement they gave. And then he thinks about that conversation they had in the field that day. Jonathan said, show me everlasting kindness like that of the Lord all of my life and to my family. I wonder, I just wonder, is any of that family still around? Well, they find out that there's a man named Ziba. He is not from the family of Jonathan, but he served Saul's family. He was a servant in Saul's kingdom. So they bring this Ziba in. No doubt he's shaken, scared to death. What's going to happen to him? And they inquire of him. Is there anyone from, from Jonathan's family or from Saul's family that's still alive? 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3. The king asked, is there no one left, left, is there still no one left of the house of Saul to whom I can show, look at this, to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, there's still a son of Jonathan, and he's crippled in both feet. Son of Jonathan, son of a Jonathan. I totally forgot about that. That's right, he had a son. Well, how did that, oh, and he named him that weird, oh, what was that name? It sounded like a sneeze. Mephibosheth. Yeah, who would name their kid Mephibosheth? He names him Mephibosheth. Oh, the poor kid. He's going to have to learn to spell that in the first grade. I mean, why couldn't it be Jim? You know, I mean, Mephibosheth. And he'll never, ever find a personalized license plate for his bicycle. I mean, he'll go to the rack, and there they all in alphabetical order. And right between Melvin and Meshach, there's no Mephibosheth. He'll never have that. But Jonathan names him Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth translated means destroyer of shame. And I wonder if in Jonathan's mind, he knew his dad. And he knew that Saul was not a righteous man, not a godly king, not a man after God's own heart, and actually kind of shamed the family name. And maybe he was thinking, maybe my son could redeem that. That my son in his life could be the destroyer of shame. Well, David continues to inquire of Ziba, and he says, well, he lives in this place called Lodabar. Now, to us, Lodabar is an Old Testament name we've never heard of and, and never gone to and probably never will. But for them, Lodabar, just the name itself, was not inviting at all. It was not attractive at all. It's like I grew up in Vancouver, Washington. Right across the, the border, uh, the river there is, is Oregon. There's a town in Oregon called Boring, Oregon. 
It's not inviting. Who wants to? You know, where are we going on vacations here? Thought we'd go to boring Oregon. Now, it might be fabulous, but the name itself repels you. There's other names. I I don't know if you're aware of this. There's a town in Tennessee called Bitter End. Bitter End. I think there's retirement homes there. I'm not sure, but Bitter End, Tennessee. (laughs) Arkansas has a town named Toadsuck. How would you like to be from Toadsuck, Arkansas? Proud of my city, Booger Hole, West Virginia. <laughs> I, I'm not making any of these up. Hell, Michigan. That's why they all moved to Linden. You can live in Hell or Linden. Let's move from Michigan, let's go to Linden. Lodabar had that kind of a name. To us, it doesn't mean anything, but when they heard that name, the name means no pasture land or wasteland. I mean, it sounds like a horrible place to go. And until recent years, that's like Weed, California. Now it's like, ooh, Weed, let's go. Okay, but then it was like, who would go to a town called Weed? Who would go to a place called No Pastures, Wasteland? And this is where Mephibosheth lives. He's got that name, and he's living in this place, and he's an orphan. I mean, his dad died 10 years ago. Mephibosheth, Dave's saying, he's, he's probably a teenager now. Wow, living in Lodabar, wasteland. It's like a teenage wasteland. Oh, man. And he's thinking about all this. So, so as he's looking at all this, oh, and then there's that little, no pun intended, there's this parenthetical footnote about Mephibosheth. Just a couple chapters earlier, we find out this about Mephibosheth, 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, parenthetical footnote. Jonathan's son of Saul had a son, who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, the news that Saul and Jonathan and the other two uncles had been killed on the same day. His nurse picked him up and fled, partly because fleeing from the Philistines, partly because there's a new administration coming, we've got to get him out of here. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Crippled in both feet. Now, it's easy for us to sit here and think about, okay, there's this guy, I can't even say the name yet, but Mephibosheth, he's crippled in both feet, he's part of this story, and we put him into the category of like Tiny Tim, you know, God bless us all, one and all, you know, kind of thing. Can I put this in the context to let you know how real this was? I mentioned last week that uh, in the 90s, I took multiple trips to India, who would work in Calcutta, Mother Teresa's homes. And I believe it was on my first trip, uh, we were in one of her homes that was an orphanage, and it was a multi-storied building. And we'd gone there, and we would go every day, we'd go to one of the different homes and just serve, just whatever they needed. And we went into this, this multi-storied orphanage, and on one of the levels, it was just crib after crib after crib after crib of all these babies, because people would come, and Mother Teresa and her sisters of charity had said, if you don't want your baby, don't kill it, don't leave it in the streets, bring it to us, we will take your baby. And people did. They couldn't afford to take care of the child. And there were just lines of these babies, most of them quite listless. And as we walked through, it was terribly heartbreaking. The one who was coordinating us as a volunteer says, do not hold these babies. Because if you hold them and they get used to that, we don't have the staff to be able to continue that on. And it's better that they not even experience that. Well, that day they took us up to the top They said, we want you to play with the older kids. 
And usually in these kind of settings, when we were in India, at that time, this was the 90s, and I wasn't running yet, and I was lifting weights, and I was big and a lot stronger, and I would take these kids, and I'd throw them in the air, and I'd swing them around. I was a human jungle gym, and, and just the kids would come. But that day, with the jet lag and with some stuff that I'd eaten, I just didn't feel good. Not fully sick, but just real punky. Didn't have the energy to throw kids around. And we went up on the roof, and there were all these children and our group just spread out, and some of them are over here doing the jump rope thing, and some are just holding hands and skipping around, and some are kicking a ball. And I just couldn't. And they're all kind of off plane, and there was this little girl, maybe four years old, just kind of sitting up against the wall. And I thought, I'm with her today. So I went over to this little girl, and I picked her up, and then I realized why she wasn't playing with all the other kids. Her legs just hung limp. Probably because her parents did that to her when she was a baby so that she could make more money as a beggar. Mm -hmm. And I just sat down against the wall and I just held this little girl. She never smiled. I just sang to her, Jesus loves the little children. She doesn't know what I'm saying. I just stroked her hair, just prayed for her. And the whole time, I just had this little girl. Well, at the end of the time, we had to hurry to get back down the street to catch the bus back to where we were staying. I was there, my sister was there. And everybody was going downstairs, going down, and all the kids were going off. And I was just sitting there with this little girl. And I was the last one from our group, and my sister said, Bob, we, we need to go. She normally calls me Bubba. So, Bubba, we need to go. We need to get the bus. And I just prayed, Jesus, be with this little girl. And I set her down. And I slowly got up and I began walking to the door off of the roof. My sister was waiting there at the door. And I was about halfway between this little girl and my sister. And my sister looked kind of past me and said, Oh, Bubba. And I turned around, and this little girl was pulling herself behind me. And when I stopped and she saw me, she just did this. And I thought, there's not a thing in the world I can do for her. I have to leave. I have to get on the bus. What does the future hold for this little girl? This week as I was rethinking about this, doing the math, she's probably, if she's alive, she's probably the age of my daughters today. She's probably begging on a street in Calcutta. See, Mephibosheth is not just a character out of a story. He was a real little boy with a real life. And on his fifth birthday, they probably celebrated that birthday in the, in the palace of the king. He was royalty. He was the grandson of the king. He had the future before him. And one day that year, 
He lost everything. He lost his dad. He lost his two uncles. He lost his grandpa. He lost his status as royalty. And then in trying to escape, he lost his mobility. And he lost his future. And for 10 years now, he hasn't been able to run in the streets with the other kids or kick the ball or climb the tree or run to the creek and swim. And there would be no future for him but to hide in the wasteland, Lodabar. Well, the king sends for him, and you can imagine Lodabar had never had anything like this, an entourage, chariots and horses and king's soldiers, and they come into town, what is this? And then they begin to ask questions. Is there a young man here named Mephibosheth? The king wants to see him. Can't imagine the fear. What's going to happen? And they take him from Lodabar to see the king. And look at what he says. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, said to David, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? This is not false humility. Dogs were not pets. They were scavengers. They were mangy. They had mites. And to have a dead dog with a carcass that's rotting and filled with maggots, that's how he felt. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I can't even walk. I can't work. I'm a beggar. I'm an orphan. I live in a place called Wasteland. And I wonder, I just wonder, if that line inspired David to write these words, when I think about the heavens, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, the work of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Maybe it was that phrase from Mephibosheth that inspired Psalm 8. But David's response to this young man, verse 7, is this. Do not be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. Mephibosheth doesn't deserve kindness. He will never be able to repay this kindness. He's not worthy of this kindness. It has nothing to do with him. It has everything to do with the one giving the kindness. And he does. He gives him an inheritance. He gives him land that had been his father's. He has servants that are given to him. And in addition to that, he's brought into the family. He says, from this day forward, you will eat at my table with my sons. You will be a part of my family, part of my kingdom because of the kindness. The reason I love the story of Mephibosheth so much is that it's my story. That I... In my sin, in my brokenness, in my rebellion, in my fallen nature, a dead dog with nothing to offer, but I've experienced the kindness of God. Titus says this, Titus chapter 3, 
At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It was a desperate life. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, because of his mercy. We don't deserve it. I can never repay it. I'm not worthy of it, but it's not about me. It's about the kindness of God. Couldn't be stated more clearly than in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead dogs, dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ, and look, and seated us seat at the table, you know, the table of the king, you know, with the sons and the daughters, the, the family and royalty, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We get to be around the table. We've got a place set for us. And Jesus would say in Hebrews chapter 2, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. They're part of the family. Why? Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This chesed of Yahweh, the apex of the kindness of God, is Jesus. And his whole life was a life of kindness. A family that's going to face disgrace and dishonor because they ran out of wine and Jesus performs his miracle because he's kind. Little children who the disciples are trying to dismiss, Jesus calls them on his lap, he holds them, he blesses them because he's kind. Lepers who no one else will have or touch, Jesus includes them, he touches them, he heals them, he has kindness. The tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners that are so far from God, he doesn't judge them or condemn them or look down from them or exclude them, he includes them, he's kind. And the woman at the well, the Samaritan who had nothing to do with Jewish men and especially rabbis and holy ones with a sordid past, he's kind to her. The woman caught in the very act of adultery and on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's kindness. He looks to the thief and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's kindness. He looks to his mother and to John and says, John, take care of my mom. It's his kindness. And he hangs on the cross for us. The joy set before him. Enduring the cross, scorning its shame. It's his kindness. The kindness of Christ is anything but meringue. In fact, Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate kindness, a selfless kindness, a sacrificial kindness, that attribute and that attitude. Um, I'm going to be kind to you. I'm way out of time, and I've still got a lot to say, but I'm going to go really fast with a couple things. Can we take a really hard left turn? Can we shift without a clutch? You've probably seen this word. It's a, it's a Hawaiian pigeon phrase, de kind. You've probably seen it around. You may not know what it means, but if you, you know, surfing world or snowboarding or mountain biking, you've probably seen it on backpacks, maybe on T-shirts or tailgates. You see that a lot with mountain bikers, de kind. It's, it's a Hawaiian pigeon term. And, and most people know, yeah, that's a Hawaiian term, but don't have a clue what it means. 
In a book, a dictionary of Hawaiian pigeons called Hawaiian Pigeon to Demax, it defines Dekine this way. The keystone, Dekine is the keystone of pigeon. You can use it, this phrase, anywhere, anytime, anyhow. Don't know what to say? Dekine. Just use anytime, anywhere, anyhow. And I was thinking, as we are taking this virtue of Christ and making it developed in us, what if we had a be kind? Be kind that we use anywhere, anytime, anyhow, the kindness of Christ. See, we are Mephibosheth, and we've experienced that kindness, and we live in that kindness, and we're called to be kind. Ephesians says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So here's the challenge. Ask yourself each day, who can I show kindness to? And remember, sometimes the greatest need for kindness is where it is least deserved and most difficult to give.